we read the story of the Good Samaritan. And let me just recap the story real quick. Here's how it goes. This guy who's like a theological, uh, you know, like a theologian, a, like a seminary professor kind of from the first century world, um, shows up with Jesus and he says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of sarcastically says, I don't know, you're the theologian, why don't you tell me? So then the guy says, the, he gets into some Old Testament stuff, right? You've got to love God and you've got to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, fine, if you can do that, you'll be okay. And so the guy starts thinking about his life. And he thinks, man, I'm probably not a very good neighbor. So how can I be less of a good neighbor and still get this eternal life stuff? So then Jesus goes in and he starts with the parable. And it's the parable we all know, right? The guy is on the road. He gets beat up and robbed. And uh, a priest who's like their first century version of like the pastor walks by. And he's like, oh, this is gross. And he just keeps walking. And then after that, the Levite walks by, which is like the first century version of like the, the assistant pastor, the church administrator or something. He goes, oh, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And just keeps going, leaves him to die. And then the Samaritan walks by, which is like the first century version of a Dodgers fan. And, right? Wait, aren't you guys all from L.A.? So, hey, welcome. Uh, <clears throat> I'm still salty. Anybody brings up the game to me, you're dead to me. Uh, just kidding. Um, walks by and actually helps the guy, right? And then at the end of the, the story, Jesus says, all right, which one of these three dudes is the neighbor? And the, the, the theologian is forced to admit, right, the Dodgers fan is the neighbor, right? The Samaritan is the neighbor. And so what we said, though, was we, we stopped right there and we said, okay, what we have to really understand about this passage, before we get into all the stuff that we're going to get into actually in the next two weeks, is we have to understand that what Jesus did was he made, uh, he made the theologian think about being the, the guy dying on the ground, right? So the story wasn't a Samaritan is on the ground and is hurt. It's a Jewish guy was on the ground and hurt. And so the theologian is supposed to picture himself in that state and in need of that help. And the idea was the ultimate picture of somebody who did that was Jesus himself. So Jesus, we call it, you know, Tim Keller used that phrase, the great Samaritan. Or what I said was Jesus is the perfect, the good neighbor. He's the one who really does that in that he comes while we're spiritually dead on the, on the side of the road. And he comes and he brings us back to life. And so I said uh, two weeks ago, we just want to sit with that. And we just want to leave it there. We just want to think for a couple of weeks about how Jesus is this perfect neighbor that all of us are not. And so here's the plan. Or wait. I'll jump back, actually. So that idea of Jesus as the the perfect neighbor is what gives us our motivation to then go and be good neighbors. So you can never be the the good neighbor to try to earn Jesus' love. We do it because we've already uh, received this love from him. Okay, like the illustration I use a lot, actually. I don't know if I've used this with you guys, but I used to beat this to death at the old church, right? Is the idea of the sun and the moon. These are two sources of light. One of them, the sun, all right, I'm going to be honest, I don't know how science works. I'm pretty sure it's like a big ball of fire and light and heat and everything is coming from the sun. The moon just sits there and it bounces off. And then we look up and go, oh, the moon is pretty bright, but it's not really, right? It's the sun that's bright. And so the idea is when we're being, when we're doing this sort of stuff for God and when we're loving our neighbors, we're just the moon, Right? We're, not the light. We're not the sun. We're not trying to be the ultimate source of light. We're just saying, look at what I've received from, from the Father, from Christ, and now I'm reflecting this into the world. And so that's our motivation. Now, 
the plan for today and next week, let me explain how this works. Normally when I write a sermon, um, actually each of these sermons I write takes me about three weeks to work on in different stages, right? And so the way it usually breaks down, and, and there's different ways to preach, right? This isn't the only way to preach. This is just usually kind of how I do it is we kind of walk through the text together. And you'll see me say, all right, jump to verse 12. And then we just, you know, we just work our way through. The next thing that I do is I, I talk about, in almost every sermon, I try to get to, how does this sermon speak to the way that the world is broken? In preaching, we call this the fallen condition focus. How is the world fallen? And what does this text tell us about how Jesus is putting everything back together? How is the, what's the Christ-centered focus of this sermon? Then what I usually do is I get into some sort of like general theological ideas, and then we take those general theological ideas and we apply them. Now, what do you do specifically about this text? So when I originally wrote The Good Samaritan, when I started outlining it, I was like, boy, this is going to be five or six hours. So, no, not really. This is going to be a while, though. So what I did was I broke one long sermon into three parts. So last week we did the text, or two weeks ago, we did the text, and we talked about the Christ-centered focus. How is Jesus the great neighbor that we can never be? Next, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the sort of general theological ideas. And what we're going to talk about is what does um, loving our neighbor look like generally? Like what does it accomplish? Um, and then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to do the application part of the Good Samaritan. So there's going to be a little bit of application today. I, we've, you know, I put some of that in here. But uh, next week, we're going to get very specific. And there's a book called Loving Your Actual Neighbor. And what I'm going to do is just rip off her seven outline points from her book. And we're going to talk about showing humility and all this stuff that uh, she does in this really fantastic little book. So today, we're going to do some general ideas about what does it look like when Followers of Jesus love their neighbors. So the first, we have three ideas, right? We're, so this is the only three-point sermon you're ever going to hear me preach. The first one is this. Loving your neighbor breaks down Babylon. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so if you've not been around a lot with us, we here at the porch, we talk a lot about this, this idea of Babylon. Um, in the Bible, there's a city called Babylon. And this city was filled with leaders and people who were idolatrous and awful, I mean, these were not great people. They, when they attacked and conquered um, the kingdom of Judah in the southern part of Israel, it was absolutely brutal. Um, they killed women and children. They were a violent, war-filled uh, uh, kind of people who were very oppressive. And like, just one illustration of how bad the, the city of Babylon and this kingdom of Babylon was is they, they took the city of Jerusalem, they burned the um, uh, temple to the ground, they captured the king. It was this guy named Zedekiah. Anybody looking for baby names? Zedekiah. Um, And they killed his children in front of him, and then they cut his eyeballs out, so it was the last thing he ever saw. Right? This is Babylon, right? This is, um, or you can think of a little bit later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story, right? Who has VeggieTales? Rakshak and Benny. Um, Even though you guys know how much I hate VeggieTales. It's still funny, right? Rakshak and Benny. Um, they, you know, worship this idol or we're going to burn you to death. And they're like, all right, burn us to death. We'll be all right, you know. And then uh, they don't, you know the story, right? They don't burn to death and there's a fourth guy in there. And, but that's the idea, right? Worship this idol, do this thing like we want you to do it or we're going to kill you. That's the city of Babylon. And so throughout the prophets especially, this, the idea of Babylon becomes sort of this metaphor, this picture for the way that the world works after the fall. There's these evil systems of oppression and injustice and they, they push people down and um, it, it hurts people, and it's awful. And so um, 
there's other examples in the Bible of this sort of world system, right? You have Egypt, think of Pharaoh and Moses and that whole story. You have the Assyrians who were just absolutely terrible, like with, um, in the story of Jonah. Um, the reason, I mean, there's a reason Jonah didn't want to go. If you guys remember at the English service, we taught the book of, I taught the book of Jonah. But I mean, the Assyrians were absolutely brutal. Like they would take people and uh, bury them up to their necks and then pull their tongue out and stake it into the ground and then just leave them. Right? That was the Assyrians. And they were this, again, just like Babylon, they were this oppressive group. The thing is, Judah and Israel become part of this pattern. We're going to read that in a second. Um, and then, like, the ultimate, one of the big examples is in the New Testament, you have the idea of Rome, right? The, the nation of Rome with slavery. And um, a little bit after the New Testament, like right at the end of the New Testament, you have Nero's cruelty, um, who he would, uh, he unleashed this violent persecution against the Christians to get everybody off of his back. Um, you have um, the violent expansion of Rome and sexual sin and the worship of wealth. And so Rome becomes sort of this big picture of what Babylon looks like. And so the people of God, as you read the Old Testament, were supposed to be different. So Babylon is how the world works, and the people of God were supposed to be sort of the opposite of Babylon. Um, in Wait. Uh, sorry, hold on. I'm missing some verses. All right, I'll just read this to you. This is from Isaiah 117. God's people were told to learn, to do good, to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. This is what God tells his people to do, and they basically did the opposite, right? They're supposed to be the anti-Babylon, but a very common theme in the prophets is, you guys are supposed to be the opposite, and you're acting just like Babylon, you guys are doing this over and over again. You're just being, uh, you're acting like the people of the world. So like Isaiah 3.14, I'll read you a few of these verses here. Uh, 3.14, the Lord will enter into, wait, hold on, let me stop for just a sec. Sorry, my slides got all messed up again. Yeah, here we go. Isaiah 3.14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. Right. So you guys are supposed to be taking care of the people, and you're taking advantage of the people. Or Ezekiel 22. The people of the land have practiced uh, um, extortion, not exhortation, extortion, and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy. They have exhorted from um, the sojourner uh, without justice. Extorted, sorry, again, I can't read. And I sought, uh, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me, um, before the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. I can't find anybody, God's saying, like, to do this anti-Babylon stuff. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their head, declares the Lord. The people of the land have, um, wait, that's, oh man, these slides got all messed up again. Sorry. And then Malachi, jumping to Malachi. Then I will draw near to you uh, for the judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Right, So the people are supposed to be the opposite of Babylon, and instead what they do is the entire Old Testament portrays them as just giving in and acting just like Babylon. 
And so Jesus's ministry, when it pops up in the book of Luke, one of the major themes in the book of Luke is Jesus is finally doing what the people were supposed to do, which is stand up to this system of Babylon. And we see that in a few ways, like miracles are one way. Miracles are a reversal of the fall. That's the big point of the miracles. It's not, here's a magic trick so that you will believe in God. It's, here's a glimpse of the way the world is supposed to be. People are not supposed to be blind. They're supposed to be able to see. They're not supposed to have diseases like leprosy. They're supposed to be healthy. They're not supposed to die, right? We were supposed to live with God. And these miracles pointed people back to Eden and pointed them forward to what life will be like in eternity. And that's why Peter, when talking about the ministry of Jesus, specifically says this, Men of Israel, hear these words that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And then he goes on with the sermon. Right? He's like, this is how you know that this is the guy who's putting the world back together because we watched him do it. Right? We watched him reverse Babylon. And so it's not just the miracles, though. Jesus' teaching also was a reversal of Babylon. Love your enemies. That's the way humanity was supposed to get along, and we don't. And so, all of, like a lot of this sort of stuff, Jesus was, his ministry was pointing people to the upside-down kingdom, which is the opposite of Babylon. And as we read church history, we see this thread continued. The church picked up the ministry of Jesus and kept it moving. Right? There's a lot of really cool historical examples. Right? Like in um, Acts 11, there was a famine in the land of Israel, and the churches got together and sent food. That was a way to reverse Babylon, right? The system of oppression was making people hungry and there wasn't enough food to eat. And so the church did something about it. Um, and a little bit later, so uh, a whole bunch of emperors in the Roman world became Christians, with quotes, right, air quotes. And uh, there was one of them who was not having any of it. And he was this guy's name was Julian the Apostate. I don't know if you know, church, uh, like, not church history, just history, like Roman history, right? This, um, he was this, uh, this emperor, And at one point, he's writing his own high priest of his pagan religion. And this is what he says. He says, The kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Each of these things, I think, ought to be practiced by us. So the emperor is writing his own... Like, the emperor's whole mission in life was to destroy Christianity. So first he tried to do it with persecution. That didn't work. So then he tried to do it by getting his own people to be better than the Christians and to do more to reverse Babylon than the Christians, but it didn't work because they couldn't, right? And so, like, we have examples from the Roman world of what these Christians were doing, right? They were, like, in, the, in that world... Um, people generally didn't want to have girls. They wanted to have boys when they had kids. And a lot of times what they would do is they would take the girls and they would leave them outside the city on the side of the road and just let them die from exposure. And uh, the Christians would take lamps and they would walk up and down the roads at night in shifts and they would pick up the girls and they would take them home and they would raise them. And that's how a ton of the, just from a take the Holy Spirit and take God out of the equation, that's one of the ways the church grew a ton just because all of a sudden all the women in the empire were Christians. Right, from a sociological perspective, that's what happened. Um, <clears throat> but there were other things, right? Like the Christians would head into towns that had the plague and take care of people as they were dying. And a lot of times these Christians were known for dying of the diseases of the people that they were taking care of. Well, everybody else in the Roman world was running away. Uh, moving forward, like out of the Roman world, Christians like really headed like hospital movements and ran orphanages. And you know, it's, it's kind of funny, like, and I think in a lot of our minds, we think of those orphanages because of uh, movies and stuff, like these brutal places that were awful. And a lot of times they were not great. But 
the idea behind it was Christians were really the only people looking around in the world and saying, boy, there's a lot of kids that need somewhere to live, and we don't have resources to make it perfect, but like, let's give this the old college try, right? Like, um, uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield opened an orphanage in um, Georgia, right? So they, they were trying to take care of kids. Like We have examples of people like William Wilberforce, if you know him, who fought his entire life to end the African slave trade um, in the British Parliament. And when he started, he was basically the only one. And by the time he ended, it did. Um, in modern times, we have Christians fighting uh, sex slavery. There's a lot of really great ministries uh, like, um, oh, what's it called? Like Because Justice Matters, an international justice mission. We have Christians in food banks, foster care, like, you know, foster the city. Like those guys are pretty great. That's why we're foster parents. Right? So Christians are supposed to be what we're looking at the world and then reversing the effects of Babylon. And we see this in the Good Samaritan story, don't we? He shows up. How does Babylon, what has Babylon done for this guy, right? How does this world system is? They've beaten him and left him for dead, which shows the brokenness of human relationships and the oppression of a lot of human relationships. And um, we, we see his, his body is broken and he's dying. And the fall, right, is we're not supposed to be like this. We're not supposed to be broken and dying. And so the, the Samaritan points back to Eden and forward to eternity by doing something about it. He gets down and um, he, he takes medicine. I mean, it's like very primitive medicine, right? Like poured some olive oil on his face or whatever. But like, you know, that's what they did back then. Some oil and wine. And he tries to help this guy, takes him to the inn, um, he comes to a situation of brokenness, and he says, the world is not supposed to be like this, so I'm going to do something about it. So that's the first sort of thing that we're supposed to do. Uh, that's the first thing that, um, that neighborly love does, is it looks at Babylon, and it starts to break it down. I, I don't like this. I'm going to do something about this. Now, no one single person is going to be able to break the whole wall of Babylon down, but you could take one brick out and throw it away. Right? You, you can do it slowly. So here's some application questions. All these application questions are on the U version thing. So you know, if you don't want to frantically write them down as we're doing this, you can get them. They'll also be where the podcast is on our website if you want to go look at the thing. So here's the first application question. Are you close enough to your neighbors where you can see where Babylon has impacted them? See, a lot of times we keep distance from our neighbors, and we don't actually get to see how they're suffering, how things are not going well. We don't get to see where's the brokenness in their life. And so a lot of what we're doing when we talk about loving our neighbors is, first, you just have to put yourself in a position to actually see what's going on in their life. Um, The second question, on a wider scale, in what ways do you participate in Babylon? You know, I mean, um, if my grandmother was alive, she'd shoot me in the face for saying this, but let's be real. A lot of times America is Babylon, right? You know what I mean? Like, we do things that are not, we're not the you know, like the worst country in the history of the world. But we do a lot of things that like oppress people in other parts of the world. And we do things without thinking about it. And so how can you be a responsible American, right? As living here, what can you do to sort of, or where in your life are you maybe accidentally participating in Babylon? And then the last of these uh, application questions for this first idea, on a personal level, how can you help reverse Babylon in the lives of your neighbors? Right, so can you get close enough to your neighbors to actually see what's going on? And then what like practical steps, what can you actually go do with a neighbor in your life to make their life a little bit less crappy because they live in Babylon? You know what I mean? All right, that's the first idea. Second idea, point two, loving your neighbor is going to be costly. Let's just be real about this. It's going to be costly. Um, because it's costly, what we do is we make excuses. 
why we don't have to do it so that it doesn't cost us anything. So here's it. Why didn't the Levite or the priest help the Samaritan? I'm out. This will be a real question. Somebody shout it out. What do you think? What are some of the reasons? We're not actually told, but what could be a reason why they kept walking? Purity laws. Purity laws. Yep. They were, they were working in the temple, and they're not allowed to touch dead people or that sort of stuff. Uncleanness, right? What else? There's a couple of these. Time? Yeah. Oh, man. You know, like, giants are on at 630. Well, not anymore. Pitchers and catchers report in 120 days. Who's excited? All right. No, I'm just... I actually looked that up yesterday. I was curious. Okay. Uh, yeah, time, right? I got somewhere to be, man. You know, move some people to see. What else? Pride? Yeah, yeah. That's a lower class dude. I'm an upper class priest. I'm not going to. No thanks. Any others? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why help? Nobody. I don't get the recognition for it. Yeah, that's a good one. Actually, I didn't think of that one. That's a really good one. Yeah. I'm going to steal that next time I teach this. Um, yeah yeah like I'm a Samaritan that person's a Jewish person I'm not going to help the other ones I wrote down maybe the robbers were still around right it's this sketchy part and this guy was clearly by himself it's dangerous to stop and help this guy Um, maybe they're afraid of how much it would cost maybe they just didn't care (laughs) right I don't know like uh, no empathy right some reason, I mean, again, it's a parable, it's not a real story, but in the parable, they must have had some sort of a reason. We do the same thing. Why we don't help people, why we don't help our neighbors. Well, what if they turn my help down, you know? Or what if, there's a lot of reasons we come up with. Um, do you remember in the summer, if you were with us in the summer, we read the book Generous Justice by Tim Keller. And in that book, he references a sermon um, from Jonathan Edwards, who was a, uh, like in the 1700s, he's a preacher in New England, um, and he wrote a sermon called The Duty of Charity to the Poor in 1733. And Keller talks about it a little bit in that book. And he says this. I wrote down uh, Edwards' points, basically like, why don't we help the poor? And these are the reasons. Though, okay, this is all Puritans, right? So though they be needy, yet uh, are not in extremity, right? They're not destitute. Basically, well, it's not as bad as it's going to get for them. So I'm going to give them a little more time to try to figure it out. Um, but what Edwards says is the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that, so th- that idea as yourself makes this excuse completely pointless. Because nobody waits until their life hits rock bottom. I mean, people do actually. But most people don't always wait until their life hits absolute rock bottom before they start making changes and helping themselves. Right? And so if you wouldn't do that to yourself, you're not supposed to do that to other people. And... Uh, the second idea, he says is, well, they're ungrateful, right? This guy brought it on himself. That's what he says. And he says, look, if you understand the gospel, you would never make this excuse. Because this is exactly the gospel, is you're an ungrateful wretch, and you brought all of this on yourself, and guess what? Jesus comes and saves you anyway, right? And so then how can you turn to somebody else in a lesser need and be like, well, they're ungrateful, and they did this to themselves, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so he actually, this is one of my favorite ones. He also gets into here. And even if that's true, even if they brought this on themselves, what about the family? What about the kids? You know, maybe they have kids. Did the kids bring this on themselves? Probably not. And so he says, look, guys, sorry, this isn't an excuse. The last one he says, and I'm summarizing, I put this sermon, I linked to it uh, in the thing, right? So if you want to go read this whole sermon, I read it last week. It's pretty great. Um, the last one he says is, um, I have nothing to spare. And what Edwards says is usually when you say, well, I can't help out, 
what you really mean is I can't help out without it costing me something. Right? It's a sad state of affairs when church people get together and say, we're going to help as long as it doesn't really change anything in my life. We should be the people that everybody looks at and goes, boy, their lives are not as good as they should be because they help. Right? This is the whole point, right? Is uh, do what Jesus did. It cost Jesus something, right? Think about that. Uh, oh, wait, actually, let me jump back and say one thing, too. When we're talking about the cost, too, we're not just talking about money, right? Helping people costs a lot of things, time and energy, comfort, control. A lot of times, like, uh, just, you know, like, easiness. Like, it just, it's hard to help people, and we like life to be easy. And we have to give that up if we're going to help people. But we do it because, again, Jesus is... Um, the great Samaritan, right? Jesus is the one who did this for us. His death came to us when we didn't deserve it. And, um, well, I'll, actually, I'll say this first, too. Just his ministry, we see Jesus doing this, don't we? He's constantly exhausted and helping big crowds that clearly uh, don't deserve it. And the picture we're given of Jesus over and over and over again is that word we did a, we, a whole part of a sermon about. The, it's a word about Jesus in the New Testament, in Greek, it's, we translate it compassion. This word compassion is usually used about Jesus. He had compassion on them, and so he helped them. In the early church, we see them doing this constantly, helping people at great cost. Right? When we first open up the New Testament, there's this group of believers, uh, the book of Acts. We, there's this group of believers who don't have enough stuff, to, don't have enough food to eat. Don't, like They're all in Jerusalem. They came from all over the place, and they're forming this new community. So what do they do? The people with property in and around Jerusalem sell their houses and stuff. And they, like Barnabas was one of these guys, sold his house and gave the money to the church and they distributed it. And then if you remember the Ananias and Sapphira story, it didn't go great for some of them. Um, But like, again, we see the church uh, like nursing people back to health, like I mentioned earlier, during plagues, taking care of orphans, building hospitals. These are all things that were costly to the people that did them. And they did it anyway because Jesus, again, saving them was costly for Jesus. We're reflecting that light. We're acting like the moon. What Jesus does to us, we do for other people in a smaller way, but we do it. And so let's get to these application questions, right, for this second point. What's your excuse that keeps you from helping? What is it? Okay, we, I probably didn't hit it in this list of excuses because there's so many. We're so good at convincing ourselves, right? I mean, the, you know what's the ultimate example of this is every time somebody eats McDonald's. Right? We're so good at convincing ourselves that it's going to be okay and that this is good for me. <laughs> and it's not that big of a deal. And then I eat McDonald's and I go home and I lay in the fetal position and say, why did I eat that? You know, We do this with everything in our lives. We're so good at lying to ourselves. So what's the lie that you believe that you constantly tell yourself? This is why I don't have to help my neighbor who's clearly being uh, hurt by the system of Babylon. That's the first question. Second question, if you had an outsider come in, Right, if I hired somebody, a private investigator, which I'm not going to do, but <laughs> just heads up. If I hired a private investigator to follow you around, what would they come up with to describe how you sacrifice for others? They take a look at your bank accounts. They look at your life. They watch you and how you spend your time. Could they come back to me with a report and say, here's how this person is sacrificing for the love of neighbor? And then the last thing is just, look, think of one way you can make someone's life uh, you can make your life worse by making somebody else's better. One little thing. And I don't mean worse like now I'm destitute and I have to move out of my apartment. And, but just not as good as it should be. Like it could be if you were selfish. 
What's one little thing you can do? Let's just start with one thing. Um, Okay, that's the second idea. Here's our third idea. Um, Loving your neighbor crosses tribal boundaries. So there's two amazing books on this subject. One is there's a guy named John Piper. He wrote a book called Race, Cross, and the Christian. And John Piper is a white pastor in Minneapolis who grew up in the Deep South. And as he got older, he kind of started to think about, boy, I got all these racist tendencies inside of me and how the gospel uh, beat that stuff out of him. And he thought, I should write a book about this. And so he did. And it's a fantastic book about race. And it's specifically about race in America and how the gospel impacts that. Another book is called From Every People and Nation, and a biblical theology of race by a guy named J. Daniel Hayes. And this is just the theme of race throughout the Bible. He talks about like the theme of uh, racial injustice and that sort of stuff throughout the Bible. Now, let's start here. The... Man was created in the image of God. Every, every single human being created in the image of God. And we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with each other, had these perfect relationships before the fall. No shame, right? It says they walked around um, butt booty naked. They didn't have any shame. You know what I mean? Like they had this perfect relationship between the two of them. Then Genesis 3 happens and the relationship turns in on self, right? And we see this in one of the funniest and saddest parts of the Bible. Where God comes to Adam and he says, did you eat the fruit? And you guys know, I always joke about this, but you know Adam's response. Well, I did, but the woman who you gave me, by the way, made me do it. That's what he says. Like, really? And then Eve, did you eat the fruit? Well, yeah, but like the snake made me do it. Passing the buck, right? All of a sudden, everybody's selfish is the first thing that we see. And then, well, is it going to last, this selfishness? Let's talk about the very next story in the Bible, right? You have two brothers, Cain and Abel. Right? And how long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. <laughs> You're welcome. Feel free to use that at work. Be the most popular kid there. All right. Um, just kidding. Uh, I had a pastor when I was younger. He used to see, like, the joke was how bad of a pun he could make. Right? Like, and that was one. Of, I stole that from him, right? Like, that was, that was the worst one, I think. Um, anyway, Cain and Abel, right? The two brothers. Smashes them in the head with a rock or whatever. This is the very next relationship. Clearly, humanity is broken. And much of the Old Testament is about people in conflict. Just look at the book of Judges. It's like one of the most depressing books in the Bible about all this, like 400 years of this sort of conflict. By the time we get to the, 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 the New Testament and Jesus, Samaritans and Jewish people are the ultimate example of us versus them. Right? This is in the ancient world. Again, the history of the Samaritans, just real quick, we talked about it before, but uh, just real quick, is this. When the Assyrians came in and took everybody from the northern kingdom of Israel captive, they scattered them around. Then they brought in other people to replace them in the land. So there was this group of people from kind of all over the ancient Near East living in the northern kingdom of Israel while the southern kingdom of Judah was still a thing. Fast forward like 150 years or so. The Babylonians come in and take the southern kingdom captive and move all those people out. But they leave just a few Jewish folks in the kingdom of Judah. And what happened was those Jewish folks started intermarrying with these outsiders from the northern kingdom of Israel. And they created a people group that we call, you know, the Samaritans. That's where they came from. But then once the people of Israel came, or the people of Judah, came back to the land after the exile was over, there was all sorts of conflict in the book of like Ezra and Nehemiah with these Samaritans who were there. 
And what happened was the Samaritans said, fine, we don't want to be part of your group anymore. We're going to go do our own thing. And so they had sort of like the, the Diet Coke version of the religion, right? They made their own temple. They had their own priests. Um, you see this when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And she starts arguing with him about, well, you know, you guys worship there and we worship here. And we'll find out who's right someday when the Messiah comes. You know, sorry. And Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah. What? Uh, you know, um, that's a great story. But like they had their whole other thing. They, they were separate. But it was a lot, it was very similar. It's kind of how, I mean, without all the racial hatred and everything, but it's kind of how evangelicals probably view Mormons, right? A lot of the Mormon religion sounds real Christian-y, and then when you really start getting into it, it's not. And that's how the Jewish people thought about the Samaritans. And let me tell you just with two historical events that really sort of escalated the hatred. So around 6 AD, so right around when Jesus was born, a bunch of Samaritans saw the parade of Jewish people heading up to the temple. So a lot of them would have to pass through Samaria to get to the temple from other parts of Israel. And they snuck in with the big crowd of pilgrims. And they got into the temple, and they took a bunch of human bones and scattered them all over, which was like one of the worst things that you could do. It desecrated the temple, and it made everything unclean, and it ruined the Passover week. Um, Then again, in 51 AD... So after Jesus told this parable, some Samaritans, again, saw that big crowd of Jewish pilgrims coming, and they murdered a bunch of them on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so the Jews appealed to Rome and said, hey, you guys are supposed to be keeping the peace here. And Rome completely ignored them. And so this mob of Jewish people went to a Samaritan town and burned it to the ground and killed everybody, men, women, and children, sort of killing And so that second event happened a little bit after Jesus told the parable. But you can see just from that history, right, that these two groups of people did not like each other. And they did not get along, and they lived very close to each other. But again, it's not supposed to be like this. This is not the way the world is supposed to work. Um, Look at We see this all throughout the flow of Scripture, is that God is leading his people back to the way that it's supposed to be. And one interesting place we see this is that um, after the... Exodus, right? Israel was a multi, actually a multi-ethnic group. Let me explain this to you. So most of the people of Israel were descended, the Hebrew people were descended from the, the from Abraham and then you know Isaac and Jacob and then the twelve sons, right? And so the, these tribes made up the people of Israel, but that's not the whole group that enters into the promised land and becomes the covenant people of God. Israel was actually a multi-ethnic group. Um, that guy Hayes in that one book says this. Um, one of the major, thus, one of the major boundaries that will delineate this ethnic group called the Sons of Israel from other groups is a theological one and not merely a biological one. So what he says is, and I'll get into this, the people of Israel were not originally an ethnic group. They were a theological group. And uh, like, you know, okay, so this is how it worked. You know the Exodus story, right? Moses and Charlton Heston, let my people go, the whole thing, right? Uh, stands up there. Yells at Pharaoh, there's the frogs and the locusts, right? And the, um, you know, all the stuff, right? The, the, the Nile turns to blood. And then the death of the firstborn is the last plague. And so the people of Israel get to leave, all the Hebrews. They get together and they take off. But there's an interesting verse that not a lot of people probably have ever noticed. It says this, talking about the people. It says, and, you know, and there was a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. A mixed Multitude. What that means is that the people who left were not just the Hebrew descendants of Abraham. The group that left Israel, again, was this theological group. So who were they? And in the book, he really gets into this and he explains it. But they were Hebrews, obviously was the biggest group there. 
They were Egyptians. We learned some of the Egyptians watching the plagues went, that's the real God, and took off and went with them. Um, and this is the theme, the major theme of his book is um, in the Old Testament, there's a group called the Cushites who were um, darker-skinned black Africans. And a bunch of these Cushites went with the people of Israel. And Moses actually at one point married, his second wife was a Cushite woman. And at one point, Miriam and Aaron get super upset about this and challenge Moses' authority because he married a Cushite woman. And then God gives Miriam leprosy, if you know that story, and then he, it's a whole thing. right? But the, lo- the point is, like, she, Moses' wife even was probably a black African. And then the fourth group is we know that um, Egypt conquered a lot of people and then brought them into the land of Egypt from all over the place. So there were probably scattered groups of these people with them. And so once God shows up at Sinai and he says, here's the people of God and you know, here's the Ten Commandments and we're going to enter into this covenant, the group that was entering that covenant was actually a majority Hebrew but multi-ethnic group of all sorts of different people who left the land of Egypt. So then they get into the, the promised land, and God says, okay, here's the law. Here's how that you're supposed to, to act, and here's how I want you to act as my covenant people. There were a ton of rules about sojourners and foreigners, right? people coming into the land. Um, and what, Jesus, um, sorry, what, what God says in the Old Testament in that law is, I need you guys to remember that you used to be those people. You were the outsiders, Right? Abraham is a type of this. Originally, Abraham was called to leave his own country and come to Canaan. Um, and then there's the people in Egypt. The whole time they were in Egypt, they were the outsiders. The point is, like, imagine there was a guy from a poor neighborhood, and he wins the lottery. Right? And then all of a sudden, he turns into one of these all poor people are stupid kind of guys. You know? like, but you, 10 minutes ago, you were poor, and you just happened to win the lottery. How... How can you forget your friends and forget where you came from? That's the call of the people of God is don't forget that you were foreigners. You were sojourners. You were the outsiders in a different land. And now I need you to remember how you hoped people would treat you and I need you to treat them that way. And so there's actually, as you read through, just to be completely honest, there's two types of command to deal with outsiders. The first type of command is exclude them from stuff. And that, that does happen. And there's a lot of verses about keeping foreigners away if you start looking some of this stuff up. But what was really going on here was God was telling them, um, keep not necessarily the people away. The point was keep their idolatry away. Don't let them come in and then influence you. Right? One example of this is Solomon's um, tons of wives were from other countries. And there's a specific verse that's like, and he adopted all of their idols and stuff. That's what God's telling them to keep away. But... The main idea is to love the foreigner and to take care of them and the sojourner. And there's so many of these commands uh, in the Old Testament. Watch this. Jeremiah 22.3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Sounds like the Good Samaritan. Um, And do no wrong or violent to the resident alien. That's our word there. The fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So take care of the resident alien. Um, You shall do... Uh, sorry, Exodus 22. You shall, do, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Treat these people well because you used to be these people. Um, another interesting one I didn't put in here is actually, and when foreigners are here in the land and maybe they're working for you, they get the Sabbath too. right? They get a day off too. You have to treat them like 
they get this benefit as well. Or then this one in Leviticus, you shall not strip your vineyards bare, and uh, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Right? So here was like an ancient welfare system of you don't get to harvest all of your crops. You have to leave some of it there so that poor people and foreigners, people who are not part of the covenant people of Israel, can come and have some food. And so like one great example of this obedience specifically is if you know the story of Ruth and Obed in the book of Ruth, um, he, he leaves, he takes care of her, a foreign woman, and then he actually even marries her at the end of the story. Right, this foreign woman. And so summed up, basically, the commands are, in the Old Testament, is you're not supposed to let them influence you with their idolatry. You're supposed to influence them by love. That's the command that God gives his people. And that's picked up in the ministry and the life of Jesus and in the Gospels. If you remember the first two chapters of Luke, really long chapters, right? they're all about 80 verses or something. And in there, there's these two songs, the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah. If you want to go back and read them, they're filled with And this salvation is for who? The whole world. The kingdom is coming for the whole world. All of these people. And then we have examples of the way Luke especially portrays outsiders. You have the faith of the centurion, where Jesus says, boy, I haven't seen faith like this in the land of Israel. This is a Roman soldier, Jesus says, has the most faith of anybody that I've seen so far. Or then you have like the Samaritan woman at the well. We just talked about that in the book of John. Or you have the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and is like, hey, I need some help. And Jesus sort of makes this, you know, well, I'm here for the people of Israel first and then for the rest of you guys. And then she kind of, I don't know if it was a joke. I really wish I could be there to hear the tone of voice. I love this story. She goes, well, even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table. And I think Jesus laughed and was like, yeah, you get it. (laughs) And then he gives, you know, he helps her, right? This Acts 2 then, we jump to Acts 2. And what we see is, So that's the ministry of Jesus. Then we jump to Acts 2, and we see the Pentecost is specifically written as a reversal of the story of Babel, right? So you know the Tower of Babel. All the people try to reach God and build this thing, and God changes their languages and scatters them out, right? This is part of the division. Sin has caused this division. But then the people are gathered back together at Pentecost, Parthians and Medes. This is the people who were there to hear Jesus, par- or to hear Peter talk about Jesus. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, <clears throat> Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And then he, he goes on. That's the group. Look at the map here from the ESV Study Bible. This is where the people came from to hear Peter preach. This is the early church. The very beginning of the church is all kinds of people coming together to learn and to hear about Jesus. And then when you, get, when you jump to Revelation, right, we have, I'm not actually going to read these verses here, but I'm like here's one of them. You know, like, um, oh wait, I don't know why that copied in there. There we go. Like this one, right? Um, uh, at the bottom there. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people. From, you know, the idea is eventually when we get to heaven, what's going to happen is there's going to be this giant multi-ethnic community of God's people worshiping and giving him glory. And so when we're talking about loving our neighbors, it's very important to see that this thread of, of runs through the whole Bible, that we are supposed to cross these lines that we've built because of sin, these tribal lines. And it's what the Samaritan did, right? He was not supposed to help that Jewish guy. Those are tribal lines. And he did it. And Jesus says, this is the guy who acts like the neighbor. So let's ask some questions then about this. 
How is your life intentionally set up to build relationships with people who are different from you? Right? Not accidentally. Accidentally is somebody at my work is different than me. Intentionally is something else. How are you being intentional about this? Here's the second idea or question. How is your life unintentionally set up to not build relationships with people who are different than you? Right? So a lot of times we do little things and we might not even know that we do these things that send a message to people that aren't like us. I don't really want anything to do with you. <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of little, like, just think about your life. What ways you might not even have thought about before says, I'm not really, I don't really want to know you very well if you're different than me. Um, and then the last question. Think of one way you can spend time with someone who isn't from your tribe. And I, I use that word tribe on purpose because it's vague. Um, Tribe can mean ethnically, right? racially, whatever. Uh, it can mean socioeconomically. It can mean hobbies. right? I had to spend a whole week with a Dodger fan during that series this week when I was at my pastor's thing. He says it was. He's like adamant. It's not a swing. Or he says it was a swing. It was a swing. I was like, yeah, I'm about to swing. You know, Just kidding. Right? No, but how are we really, that's a joke, but how are we actually doing that? Are the Dodgers more important than Jesus? No. Like in Giants? No, right? Like we should be in fellowship, right? All right. So that's the, the three ideas. So loving your neighbor breaks down Babylon. Loving your neighbor is costly. And loving your neighbor crosses these tribal boundaries. So what I want you to do is spend some time with these questions this week. Uh, maybe write some answers if you want in the back of your Luke notebooks there if you have one. Um, like I said, they're in the thing. We'll put them up later today. Um, really pray through them and examine your heart. And then next week, um, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to get very specific. How? So this is like what loving a neighbor does. Now we're going to get into like, how do I actually do that practically? Like what are some very easy steps and that sort of stuff uh, to love our actual neighbors? All right, let's pray.